Hello and welcome to the Kick in the Creatives podcast, hosted by myself, Sandra Busby, and my fellow creative, Tara Roskell, offering you interviews, inspiration, motivation, and a gentle prod in the right direction. And for lots more information, challenges, and other useful tools to help you get creating, you can go to www.kickinthecreatives.com. And of course, this is where you can also find today's show notes. Enjoy the show. So today we are really excited to have Danny Gregory on the show and I'm sure he doesn't need any introduction since we've been talking about him on just about every episode we've recorded so far, haven't we Tara? Oh, where are you? Well, you said he didn't need any introduction, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you do want a bit of introduction. A little bit. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so Danny's many things. I'm not quite sure where to start. So aside from being an artist, he's also the author of countless books, which I'm sure many of you already have on your shelves at home. So there's Everyday Matters, The Creative License, and Art Before Breakfast. That's just to name just a few of them. He's also the co-founder of Sketchbook School, which is spelled with a K, which I'm sure many of you would have heard of already. And on top of all that, he teaches, he blogs, he makes tutorial videos, the list just goes on. But there's also a really sad and moving story behind all that. And we'd like to talk a bit more about that too. So on a scale of one to ten, Tara, how excited are we to have Danny on the show today? Well, I I don't think you could contain yourself at all, could you? You were even deciding what to wear for a voice-only podcast. I know, I know. The nerves, they're killing me. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) It's so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. It's quite early for you there, isn't it? Well, it's 8.30. I've had my first cup of tea, so I'm ready to go. You done your drawing yet? You know, I was getting my microphone set up, so I did that instead. (laughs) Well, we'll let you off. Thank you, thank you. I said to Tara today, I don't know what to wear. I'm so excited. What should I wear? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm wearing a tuxedo and I have a martini at hand. So, Oh, brilliant. That sounds lovely. That sounds really nice. I've got a cup of tea, so that'll have to do. Fantastic. Now, where are you guys? Are you guys in the same physical location? We haven't met each other yet. No. It will be something that happens. We'll probably meet somewhere in the middle, I expect, won't we, Tara? Yeah. We probably won't like each other when we meet Fate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whereabouts did... Because you came from England, didn't you? Whereabouts did you come from? I was born in London, um, but I left when I was about two or three. Oh, Um, so there's there's no cockney underneath all of your... um... No, 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 not at all. I mean, I... I, I um, spent my childhood moving from place to place, and I came to America when I was 13. So I've been here ever since. We want to kick off, if we can, with um, your going back to your childhood. And um, from your book, Peanut, that I read, it didn't sound like it was a particularly easy one. Did you ever use drawing as a way of coping you know, with the difficult times back then? You know, I absolutely did. Um, I think, in general, children use drawing as a way of engaging with the world, right? I mean, it's something that we all do, even if we don't end up drawing at any other point in our lives. Every child from the age of two or three up until usually nine or ten just draws. And you draw, you know, what you're, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, um, and it all comes out on paper. So I absolutely did that. Um, I also like to write stories and I would make storybooks that were illustrated. Um, I read a lot. And um, so definitely art making 
was crucial to me. And in fact, later on in my life, when I sort of had other um, events that were stressful or traumatic, um, it took me a while to figure out that that was the thing to go back to. But definitely the feelings that I have now when I experience that kind of thing are very similar to that early stuff. So were those stories you were talking about, were they stories about your life as you were writing when you were a kid? Or were they just like stories that you made up in your head? I, had a, I wrote a lot about a, a knight who traveled with a dachshund. So um, that wasn't really a firsthand experience. <laughs> but yeah, no, I just made up stories and just did drawings to go with them. They had nothing to do with my actual life. Tell us about what you chose to do after you left college then. Yeah, I, I, well, I, when I, I studied um, political science in college and just, I'm not sure why really, um, but that, that's what I got a degree in. And when I graduated from college, I knew that I wasn't going to become a politician or a political scientist or a journalist or any of the other things, go to law school. Um, so I really had no idea what to do. And my mother said to me, you have to get out of the house by the end of the summer. So I had to sort of scramble to find something to do. And I had a couple of contacts in the world of advertising. And so that was where I just started my job search, just trying to find a job that was going to pay my rent. And that, so I eventually started working for an ad agency. And um, I continued doing that um, basically for the next 30 years. So. And were you at all sort of creative back then? Well, yeah. I mean, I I like to write, and I used to write. Um, I wrote short stories um, when I was in high school, and some in college. I liked to act, and I was in various like productions. Um, in high school, I had done a little bit of painting, but by the time I became an adult, um, I had basically lost interest in doing that. So I was creative. And in fact, my job in advertising was creative. I was a copywriter and then a creative director. So there was definitely, um, copy, there was definitely creativity in my career. Oh. So the copywriting, how did that come from your degree? Did you sort of get trained on the job? Yes. Um, advertising has changed a lot in the decades since, but in those days, um, they, they, you couldn't really study advertising. Um, you basically kind of went into it from whatever job you had and, or whatever experience you had. And in fact, that was encouraged in those days in advertising. They liked people who had, you know, blue collar jobs or had, you know, very unusual kinds of jobs. For some reason, that was considered a, a good um, sort of background for, for advertising. But for me, you know, I had um, certainly written a lot. So being a writer wasn't unusual to me. I'd been, um, I had been a, you know, a, a, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and, um, and I had done various other things that, you know, used my creativity. Okay. So you did actually start on your art, your sort of path for art until you're in your mid thirties after a really tragic accident. Can you tell us about that and how sort of drawing helped you cope with it? Sure. So, um, you know, my career had gone long. I'd been, um, you know, sort of working my way up the ladder and, and basically focusing on my career. And, um, then I, I'd, I'd gotten married and we had a son. Um, and then, um, when I was 37, I think, 37 or 38, um, my wife had uh, a, an accident. She fell onto the tracks of the, of the New York City subway and a train rolled over her and it 
crushed her back and she was paraplegic. So um, our lives just radically changed from one minute to the next. Um, and my son was nine months old at the time. So it was just really uh, completely disrupted everything about our lives. And Patty was, um, you know, she was a resilient person and she came out of the hospital in a wheelchair, but intent on getting on with her life and doing other things. So she, I think, really sort of seized the moment and adapted. Um, but for me, it was very challenging. I mean, I, my whole perspective on life had been fairly linear. I had thought that I knew where I was going. I knew what I was going to do with my life. And suddenly, I just didn't know anymore. I didn't know what direction to take. I didn't know what was important. I didn't know what I could count on. Um, it was really just a trauma. And eventually, I did a lot of sort of soul searching. I read a lot of books. I talked to a lot of people. And nothing really worked for me. And, and one of the things that I read was a book that maybe you guys know called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And, yeah, and, and so one of the things that she talks about in that book is the idea of morning pages, which is you sit down every morning and you write several pages, just stream of consciousness without, um, you know, an intention. And you just let it flow out of your mind. And so I did that for quite a while. And I found that it was helpful in some ways, but also um, in a lot of ways, a negative experience for me because it was very much about processing negativity. You know, So I would kind of whine about my job and complain about my fate and stuff like that. And I would write pages and pages of that. And it didn't really necessarily help me to transcend it. It just helped me to sort of get deeper into it. Uh, and then one day I just had this ins sort of inspiration to try drawing. And I... Um, I started to draw, I drew the inside of my medicine cabinet and I drew each of the little bottles and tubes and stuff like that. And there's something about that process, I hadn't drawn in a really long time, but it was very calming to me and very, I was very in the moment. And so I continued with that. I, I, the next night I drew Patty, I did a drawing of her and that process was, just made me see her more clearly. Um, and to see her not as the sort of um, source of problems and, you know, this damaged person, but to see her as the person I'd loved and had been, you know, had been my best friend and all these other things. So I, I saw her clearly thanks through this drawing. And so I started to just draw on the way to work and I would draw at lunch. And, you know, my drawings weren't quote unquote good. They were just what I wanted to draw and I would write stuff next to them. So part of that, what I'd learned in the process of, of these morning pages started to come into that too. So drawing, writing together. And I found that that drawing was, um, was positive. Like suddenly I was, instead of, um, picking at the scabs of my life, I was noticing the beauty around me and I was seeing beauty in everything. And I was seeing the value in my life. And that was just really uplifting to me and helped me to focus my creativity as well, um, helped me to, to make something which became positive. And it sort of all kind of grew from there. Um, you know, it's been almost 20 years now that I've been doing that. And it's, it's just transformed my life in so many ways. So were you sharing those things that you were drawing with your wife? Were you showing her and your family? Or was it just very much for you? Yeah, I mean, I shared everything with her. I think. What did she you know, think? 
<clears throat> what did she, she think of it? She liked that I was doing it. I mean, it made yeah. me happy. So, you know, um, she was also sort of patient with it. I mean, if you're around somebody who suddenly starts drawing all the time, it's a bit disruptive also. You know, <laughs> you go to a restaurant, they pull out a sketchbook, they're drawing, you go on, on holiday somewhere and the drawing person wants to sort of sit down and draw a building, draw a garbage can, draw a, a taxi, <laughs> and you, you want to get onto the, the cathedral. Um, but, you know, she, so she, but she was very uh, understanding about it. And, you know, it just became this thing that I did, you know, it was just, who I was eventually. And people who I worked with also started to understand that this is just part of what I did as well. So do you know why you went off drawing before and why, you know, it suddenly kicked in? I do. Um, I've thought quite a lot about it. I mean, as I said, I think most people start drawing when they're, when they're very small. And then there comes a point when you are just at, at the, the tween stage, just as you enter adolescence, where you become very um, more self-aware or self-critical and judgmental. You become, I mean, there's nobody as judgmental as like a 13-year-old. You know, they're just, yeah. right? So every, you, every, you're very anxious about yourself. So you start to aim your critical faculties at everybody else as well. And you just become very hesitant, sort of snide and sarcastic and all those kinds of things. And, and, and I was, you know, a classic teenager. Um, and so I think the freedom and the fun of drawing turned into this opportunity to be judged by other people. Um, you know, you suddenly you do a drawing and you, you know, if, if it isn't really great or if anybody, you know, if you're afraid that what somebody else is going to say about it, um, it's easy to not draw. And so you, you stop or you do it intermittently or, you know, you, um, are very, very selective about what, how you show what you do. Um, but there's the freedom, the fun of it goes away and it becomes this, this, you know, there's some people who are the kids who draw, you know, everybody has had those kids in their class who were the one or two kids who could draw really well. And so everybody says, Oh, you draw so well. And that becomes part of their identity. So they keep doing it. And then those are the kids who eventually, you know, go into art school and, um, and sometimes that habit is broken in them when they're in art school too, because art school can be a very judgmental place too. And, you know, it's just, it's a winnowing effect that the world has on people who draw where there are more and more reasons not to do it. And you also get into this point where you start to see how drawing and making things is a job and that some people are good at that job and um, are successful. And then there's a lot of people who pretend to be, you know, making that their job, but actually end up being substitute art teachers or, you know, people who work at Starbucks and do drawings on a blog somewhere. And so you start, there's a sort of, the world looks at, at people who are amateurs and says, oh, are you going to try and sell that? Or, um, you know, do you, th are you they, there's always a, a purpose to it. People are always looking for what's the reason that you're doing this. And when you're little, there's no reason for doing it. You just do it. And so I think I had a lot of those things piling up on me. I mean, in high school, I would draw, but there was always kids who drew better. You know, I was not the kid who drew best. And so when it came time to apply to college, um, you know, I was much better at other things, it seemed. And um, I knew that I could go to a decent college or I could go to a mediocre art school. And I wasn't sure if I graduated from art school, what would I do with a degree in art? And nobody was particularly encouraging about it. 
Um, so I think there's just a lot of factors that contribute to it becoming more and more of a burden, more and more of an embarrassment. And that's really a shame. And, and ultimately, what I've learned as an adult has helped me to overcome a lot of that. And, and a lot of my job now is to pointing out to people that it's possible to go back to that same motivation you had when you were little and to make things as freely and with as much fun as you did then. Now, Danny, I was also in my mid-30s when I started drawing. Ah. And, um, yeah, and I remember feeling that I'd missed out. Because once you get the, the bug... It, it, it grips you, doesn't it? And I remember thinking, I've missed out on so much learning time. And I really regretted um, when I started again, I really regretted that I hadn't carried on from a child. Um, did you ever find yourself feeling that you couldn't draw and comparing yourself to other artists, you know, when you started again? And, and if you did, how did you overcome those feelings of self-doubt? Well, you know, when when I talk to people who haven't drawn since they were seven or eight and they do their first drawing and they say, this is terrible. Um, and I say, well, you're basically picking up from when you were eight. So, um, and you were probably much better at it then because you practiced a lot more. So mm -hmm. your first drawings are, are generally not what you want them to be. And, you know, there's, there's a big lag between, you know, what you do as a kid and what you do as an adult, not only in terms of your ability, but also in terms of your aesthetics. Because by the time you're an adult, you know what a good drawing is. You've seen a lot of people do good drawings. You've seen professionals and so forth. So in, so now what you're doing is you're comparing your own drawings to that that level, right? You're, you're saying, uh, I know that a drawing can be much better. And that that's really a problem because it's completely unrealistic and, and unfair to your burgeoning creative ability to, to make that comparison because you have a way to go and you have to find ways to satisfy yourself or to find something else to get out of it. Now, for me, when I was drawing at lunchtime, you know, I'd go and sit in the park and draw a tree. You know, when I was doing that, it was in order to um, make myself feel whole, to make myself feel um, – uh, to overcome these things that had happened in my life. So I was living in the present and my drawings weren't great, but I wasn't comparing them with a great drawing. I was, I was comparing them with the feeling I had when I wasn't drawing. And so that's what helped me. And every so often I would look at my book of drawings and I'd say, God, this is what a, this is terrible. What a waste of time. And why, have, you know, and all those things that the inner critic makes you do. But then I, if I stopped drawing, I would start to feel that itch again. And I would start to feel depressed too. Um, and I would go back and do another drawing and, and I would have that feeling that you get when you do a drawing, the thing that you were just describing, this, this kind of addictive quality that it has. And, and that was my reward. And so that was important to remind myself of and even to write down in my sketchbook why I'm doing this and what I'm getting out of it. And over time, if you allow yourself to have to enjoy those benefits, your drawing skills improve just because you're practicing more and more. And so slowly you kind of start to get closer to, um, you know, what you'd like to do. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, when I did my first drawing and comparing mine to someone else's and thinking, oh, God, you know, they're so much better than me. But I think over time, I managed to understand that everybody's on the same path, but um, some are at the beginning and obviously some are much further on. And also, I found it helpful to, to change the word better to different. It's actually a good thing to be different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you're trying in the end to express yourself, mm. right? So that's self. Yeah, yourself is presumably different from everybody else's. But you know, I often talk to people who say, uh, "How do you get the nerve up to draw in public?" Right, because that's a thing we all would like to do: sit down in a coffee shop, pull out your sketchbook, do a drawing of a building. Um, and for a lot of people who are starting out, this is just absolutely terrifying. And the reason is that you're afraid that somebody's going to come over and say, "Oh, look, that person's drawing," and "Oh, you must be an artist." And then they come over and they see your chicken scratchings of you know as you're just starting out. And they go, what the hell are you doing? Are you, oh, you're pretending to be an artist. I get it, you know? And the reality is that, that never happens. I mean, if you see somebody drawing in a sketchbook, you're never going to go up to them and, and accuse them of being a fraud. What you're going to do is what 100% of people report actually happens, which is somebody comes up and they go, oh, that's so great. I wish I could do that. You know, so it doesn't really matter what you're doing in your sketchbook. What matters is that you're doing it. Um, and so that's, that's the rem a reminder of why we do this is because it's really fun and it helps, you know, it helps to focus our minds and it helps us to engage with the world around us. And it doesn't really matter ultimately what it looks like on the page. It's nice if it looks closer to oh. what you are drawing, but that just takes time and focus. But nowadays, do you, I mean, obviously back then when you very first started sketching, that was one thing, but now... Do you find it much harder to sketch in public? Because obviously, I presume everyone recognizes you. Is that ever a problem? No, people don't recognize me. Um, I, I have this, I have the false beard and the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, you know, I'm drawing in public for me. And, you know, you can give off vibes if you want to that say, you know, you can be inviting to people who come up to you or you can just sort of say, like, I'm focusing and working. Um, so that's never a problem. But, you know, I think, and you also don't want to be distracted. I mean, when you're drawing, for me, it's really a, a meditative moment. I'm sitting, I'm focusing on what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm in a trance almost. I'm not, I, I, I personally find it difficult, for instance, to go to a concert, uh, you know, or to go see like a jazz show and then to draw um, because I find that my mind can't do both. I need to be engaged with what I'm drawing pretty much 100%. So mm. that, that, and, and I think what happens is if you start drawing and then you start worrying about what people around you are thinking about you, it's going to get in the way. Um, you know, I, I find like I can't write and listen to music. I'm, I'm just very kind of focused and monomaniacal. I'm exactly the same. I can't write with any noise at all, but I can draw with, with music, but not, I can't write. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're drawing with just music in the background, it's one thing. If you're drawing yeah. somebody making music, it's a different thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you actually remember the first time that you actually went outside and drew? Yes. Were you in disguise? <laughs> I was, I was wearing a cape and a mask. Um, <laughs> I was, I was in Central Park um, I had a tuna fish sandwich and um, a can of V8, and I it was um, it was early fall. I think it was um, September, and um, I, I sat on this bench and I drew. Um, an, I think it was an elm tree. It had like really smooth bark, and I drew the base of it. And the first two big branches, I was sitting very closely to it. And then I could see behind it, I drew that. And then I just wanted to keep drawing. So I drew, 
uh, a distant bench and then I drew some trees in the further background and there was a path that intersected it. And then there was a man sitting on one of the benches and um, I drew a line all the way around. Yeah, I remember it very, pretty vividly. Did anyone talk to you that day while you were drawing? No, nah, it's New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so in one of your books, you mentioned that you don't like drawing from photos and that you prefer drawing from life. So do you always carry a sketchbook everywhere or do you do some of those drawings from memory? I, I rarely draw from memory. And when I say I don't like to draw from photographs, that's not entirely true. Um, certainly in the winter, I often draw from photographs. When I'm practicing my drawing people, I draw from photographs. I think I talk about drawing from photographs and dissuade people from doing it because I think for beginners, it's a real problem. You know, I think we we all remember, you know, maybe you remember drawing when you were like 14 or 15 and you do a drawing of like Brad Pitt or something like that. You know, right? there's always that kind of thing, that thing of Johnny Depp, those things of people like spending like hours doing these kind of grubby charcoal drawings of celebrities. And, you know, and they're always kind of slightly off and like one of the eyes is bigger than the other. And those, that's the kind of drawing I think is really, uh, I think we all remember trying to do that kind of thing and maybe doing a grid right? Drawing a grid on the yeah. photograph and drawing all that kind of stuff. And that kind of drawing is really different from the kind of drawing I like doing. And that the drawing I like doing is looking at something and just kind of noticing stuff about it and trying to record that. Um, and so that's why I dissuade people from drawing photos early on, because I say photo, a, a camera does a lot of the work for you because it takes a three-dimensional object and makes it 2D. So it flattens things out. It makes them consistent. You know, uh, the way our brains work, we have two eyeballs. We have two different focal planes that we're working at and our brain merges them together. And when we do a drawing, we have to kind of fo figure all that stuff out. You know, our, our heads are moving, our eyes are fo changing focus. So there's just a lot of kind of busy things going on with our skulls and drawing is kind of figuring out how to mediate between all that because in the end what you draw and what you see are inevitably going to be really different and it's okay to for that to be the case but when you draw a photograph you're trying from a photograph you're trying to reproduce exactly what that photo has in it and you know, uh, and that's just a very different process. So it's a very we, different skill, isn't it? That drawing from life, I think. It's yeah, a it's a different skill. goal it's good, too. It's, it's good to have, good to have experience of both. I think, but I think you can't beat life drawing from life. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm feeling slightly guilty because I remember at about twelve drawing pop posters for people and selling them for a pound. <laughs> <laughs> good on you. <laughs> So you've always been an entrepreneur then. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously made a fortune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't mean to put that stuff down, but I think as, as an adult, that's not really what we want to get out of drawing. No. You know, no. so so I think drawing out of, from photos is fine, but it's just, I think it's more of an advanced thing. It's like drawing with a pencil. I consider drawing with a pencil to be an advanced thing as opposed to drawing with a pen. I encourage people to start with a pen and then move oh. on to drawing with a pencil. I think that, that um, sort of, well, you can't erase, can you? I think that helps. I think the thing is with a pencil, you, I certainly am very tempted to um, rub something out if it's wrong, but actually it's actually lovely to leave those mistakes in, isn't it, and just sort of do it again over the top and you get more of a lively a lively drawing. And with pen, you, you can't do that. 
you know, I, I love your um, dip pen drawings and your, you know, the way you embrace the blots and all the rest of it. I think it just makes it so full of life. Whereas pencil drawings are a little bit safe, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you've nailed it. Um, mm-hmm. Drawing with a pencil is like training wheels. You know, you always know you can. You always know you if you lean too much to one side or the other, somebody's there to catch you. Oh. But with a pen, you have to commit. And one of the things is that when people start drawing again, their drawings are often their lines are often fuzzy, shaggy. You know, this kind of like this sketchy quality where you go back and forth over the line 20 times, you know, whereas when you when you look at a uh, somebody who's been drawing for a long time, their line quality is very confident. You know, they draw one line, one dark line, and that's the line. Mm. And to me, the difference is like, it's like stammering, you know, that, that early kind of drawing. It's like, it's stammering or saying, you know, kind of like, well, sort of, it's kind of like this, as opposed to saying, it's this being declarative, being simple, being clear, uh, expressing yourself. But that takes time. It takes confidence. Um, and there's lots of different ways of getting to that point of confidence, but it does definitely take time. I'd love to know if you're – did your son follow in your creative footsteps? I know that he's helped you, hasn't he, film some of your videos in the past. Does he get involved now still? Well, my son is now um, almost 24, He'll be, and he, he loved to draw, and we always used to draw together. And I also – made him my sort of uh, Frankenstein project in some degrees. I, I kept, I decided to see like, what would it be like if I never discouraged him from making art? Like, where would that go with this? Where would you go with his life? And so, you know, he continued to be one of those kids who could draw. And then he went to a, a high school that um, encouraged art. And then he went to a really good art school, the Rhode Island School of Design. And uh, he graduated two years ago and he's continued to draw and paint and now he also works in the, in the movie business and he he is um works in art direction in videos and film and stuff like that so he but he has a studio and he in fact he had a uh a drawing ex- exhibition last weekend in los angeles so oh fantastic yes yeah, so oh, must... yeah he, i'm very proud of him how did he get involved in making your videos did you just say to him one day right i want to make a video can you help because <laughs> i know you you obviously made your own as well didn't you yeah well i i like it was i mean one of the nice things about having him around is i had this other creative person in the house i mean Patty was very creative, and my my second wife is also creative. But but having this kid around who was just naturally interested in stuff, and I was learning about you know how to make my own films, and so it was natural for me to say like, here, can you help you know help me figure this out? So we did it together, and he, you know, he has a, a natural eye. I mean, he's just great at composing things. I mean, his Instagram feed is always full of like the most amazing photographs. So he has this natural ability um, that comes from, you know, who he is. Uh, And it's just, it's just fun to have somebody else who you live with to make stuff with. They're great teachers as well, aren't they? And they're braver than we are. They are. They'll just plunge in and try something, whereas we're afraid of the consequences of making mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So was there actually a time when you suddenly realized, you know, I am actually good at art and that you wanted to make a career out of it? I'm waiting for that day. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know, I think uh, I, there've been, there've been moments where I've felt confident in what I'm doing, but I think I have addressed the inner critic by making the situation fuzzy. Like I've never been an artist who, well, A, called himself an artist. 
really. Uh, I've never been, I've never had, you know, a show or wanted to go and have a gallery show my work. Um, so I end up like making books that have drawings in them. And so I'm, uh, you know, uh, I, I write and I draw and I do various things and I don't have to be incredibly good at any one of them to be okay. And I think that's how I've gotten away with it is just by doing this kind of combination of stuff um, and not, you know, being a jack of all trades. So have you actually ever tried you know, or, or done some art outside of your sketchbook with the purpose of selling it? I know you said you've never had um, exhibitions. I mean, I've done illustration projects. I used to do illustrations for the New York Times and I've done them for other magazines. And, um, you know, I didn't really love it, honestly. I didn't really like doing making art for money for other people, you know, uh, particularly. Um, I I, I've never, I've certainly never made art that was like in a frame hanging on a wall. That just doesn't particularly interest me. Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I think it takes the joy out of it a bit as well, doesn't it? When it becomes a job, then rather yeah, than it just that. changes the context. Um, you know, I think when I go into galleries and I look at stuff all the time, but I just don't feel like that's the kind of conversation I want to have. I, when people look at my sketchbooks or look at my books, I imagine them sort of being by themselves, having this thing on their lap, having it be part of a continuum. You know, it's like page after page after page telling stories and being involved in a deeper conversation and, and that kind of thing, as opposed to it hanging on a wall, a bunch of people standing around holding plastic glasses with white wine in them and deciding whether or not, you know, they should express some opinion about it or it's just not a, it's not the kind of conversation I ever think of having. No, no. So can you tell um, tell us what made you decide to write your first book and, and were you surprised at how successful it was? Um, by my first book, you probably mean Everyday Matters. Um, well, yeah, that, that's, I suppose that's the first one I read. I know you've, you've did you do previous ones before that? Then? I, I did. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a couple of books before that, which you probably may not know of. Um, but from when I was really little, I always wanted to write books. I and mean, that was just my my fantasy. I had an uncle who had written a few books and every member of our family had a shelf that had his five or six books on them. And they, they were mainly pretty academic books that honestly w- were pretty dry, but there was something about that, like here's a little shelf of books that Michael wrote. And uh, that was always my fantasy. And I used to, you know, make books just to have them on a shelf. I just, that was really important to me. So I always wanted to write books and, um, then I so I wrote a couple books initially that were just mainly to have my name on a book, but then when I wrote, I was working with a publisher when I'd done these first couple of books, and uh, then they said, "Do you have any other ideas for books?" And I said, "Not really, but I'd like to draw in a sketchbook." And I showed them my sketchbook, and I told them. Then they said, "Well, why did you start doing this?" And I told them the story of Patty's accident, and they said that would make a great book. So it was really at the at the and and I was very apprehensive about it initially. I didn't feel like I should tell that story. I felt like it wasn't my story; it was Patty's story. Um, it felt very exposing uh, of myself and our family, and uh, you know, I certainly didn't feel like my drawings were of the quality to be in a book. I just had a lot of anxiety about it. So finally, you know, we did it anyway, and the book came out, and I. Again, I thought it was just going to be a minor thing. Um, and it just 
people liked it. It resonated with people, I think, because it told two stories that people could identify with. One was the story of um, thinking that your life is going to go one way and then it goes another. Um, you know, the, the idea that life can just deal you cards that you never knew were in the game. And, um, you know, I think all of us could have our lives disrupted the way that ours were. So that there's that story. And then the other story of just responding to it by making art um, and, and having, giving permission to, um, to make art. And the next book that I wrote was called The Creative License, Giving Yourself Permission to Be the Artist You Truly Are. And that was a book where I really kind of explored the anxiety that I'd had in making the first book, um, which is to say, why am I allowed to do this? Um, and why, are, why should other people be allowed to do this? And, and what if, in fact, you are? How would life be different? Talking about um, you wanting your books to be lined up on a shelf. Well, if you came into my front door and I've got a bookshelf in the hallway and nearly all of your books are just in a row in uh, my hallway. <laughs> and I better. love them. Yeah. That's even better. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's much more meaningful to me that, I mean, yeah. That's, thank you. I love them. I absolutely love them. And um, and the most recent one, um, I, I couldn't actually order it. I, it was the one I hadn't got, and it's called A Kiss Before You Go. Right. And it's probably the only one of your books I haven't got. And um, I actually asked um, if I could have it for my birthday from somebody. And um, it was out of stock, so it's on back order. So you're obviously very popular. <laughs> Everyone wants your books. Sadly, that book actually just went out of print. It's the first of my books to ever go out of print, and it's actually the book that probably means yeah. the most to me. Um, oh yeah, because it's a that's a book um, that's the my illustrated journal um, from when my my wife died and the year mm. after that. So it's about it's about um, our relationship, her death, um, and then the process that Jack and I went through over the course of the next year um, and and my kind of record of it. It's a, you know, it's, it's I guess, a different subject matter than I normally write about. So maybe that's why it wasn't quite the same uh, as, as... It must have been a very difficult book to write, I'd imagine. It, it, I mean, it certainly was a lot, it was a difficult experience to go through, but I have to say writing about it and drawing pictures about it was actually incredibly helpful. Um, yeah. I didn't certainly do that in order to make it into a published book. I did it because at that point I had spent um, a long time, a long part of my life recording and analyzing and, you know, ex going deeper into the every day of my life. So it would have seemed weird and um, weird and discontinuous to stop at that point. But also it was incredibly helpful to me to, to go through it and, and it's it's just a record of that point in my life that I'm really glad that I have, and I'm glad that Jack has to go back to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going back quickly to your Everyday Matters um, book, what I loved about that was just how you know raw it was and how honest you were, especially in, in those tiny little snippets of writing next to your sketches. Some of them are really funny, but you really didn't hold back at all. Um, was there ever a point? where you were worried about that when it came to publishing and likewise in any of your other books? I mean, yeah, sort of. Uh, I was telling strangers about these really intimate moments in my life. But I also realized that the, the writers who I love do that. You know, I mean, there's so many writers who I love who are just deeply confessional in a way that they're and are much braver than I ever have been. Um, so, you know, I got so much out of their work and so I thought 
what could happen to me if I do this? I mean, I've never had anybody, including family members or anybody else, say, like, how could you expose all this? And I mean, in that book, Peanut, that you mentioned, I mean, I write about like my parents' sex life. So I don't know, you know, it it got fairly fairly, um, vivid. So, yeah. Are you saying parents have sex lives? That's that's it's it's fiction it's a novel (laughs) have they read it as well i don't know i don't know i mean uh, probably not it's my mother may have read the bits that are about her i'm not sure but i don't know i was going to ask uh, about could you write a totally different book called shut your monkey about your inner voice and this little critic that sits there sort of gnawing away at you um have you got any tips for people to get away from that inner critic and sort of how do you deal with yours yeah well um I know that you guys did a, an episode of your podcast about this too, right? Um, oh, yeah. I think it's an incredibly important thing that um, there. There's not enough talking about it, honestly. I think it's it from what I've found out about it. It's absolutely universal. The only people who don't experience the inner critic are psychopaths and sociopaths, and I don't know U.S. <laughs> US, US presidents, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's something that absolutely is in all of us, and it has its roots in our in our childhood, and and also in our origin as a species. You know, the 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 history of of people, um, uh, you know, is that there's a voice in our heads that is rooted in the amygdala, which is the kind of um, smallest base part of our brain on which all the rest of our brains grew. And the amygdala is responsible for the fight or flight mechanism that says, um, run away, you know, this is dangerous or, or fight and, and save your life. And that part of our brain, um, tells us to stay away from new things. Don't eat that plant you've never seen before. Don't go to that area you've never been to before, you know, because there's danger in the unknown. And um, that's that is very very primal for us, and it's and it's a good thing to have. I mean, it's a good part of us because otherwise we wouldn't have survived if we just kind of blundered into all kinds of new places without having um, you know warning lights flashing. And so, as creative people, when we make new things, um, this internal voice says that's bad. Don't go there. Don't. Don't do things that make you feel uncomfortable or I'll make you feel even worse. And similarly, when we're children, we have these voices in our lives that tell us, you know, get down from there. Don't go over there. Stop doing that. Um, Don't run with those scissors, you know, that kind of thing. We have the voices of our parents, of our teachers, of our babysitters warning us away from taking risks. But as creative people, we have to take risks because we have to make new things. And so you get into a lot of conflict over that. But what you have to realize is this stuff that's hardwired into us may not have a purpose in a lot of our lives. You know, it may not be um, uh, – it's it's vestigial. It's it's not – we don't need it a lot of the time. And so what we can do is we can shore ourselves up against it by by, – coming up with ways to reinforce our creative strengths. And one of them is to, uh, when you have a voice that says, you can't do this, you're no good at that, that's a terrible idea. One thing you can do is you can say, well, let's wait to decide that. Let's judge it later. Let's, just in the, let's be in making mode and let's just 
create a big pile of stuff we're making. And then tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, we'll actually sit down and judge it. Um, so if you can, if you can kind of sign that kind of a truce, an armistice with your, with your inner critic and just say, you'll have your day, but let's wait. Um, you know, and right now I'm having fun making. And what happens then is you make a lot of stuff. And when you make a lot of stuff, you can afford to have some of it die because ultimately the really good stuff is going to survive and even the inner critic is going to acknowledge it. So that's one thing I would say, be productive and focus on productivity um, and suspend judgment. Uh, another thing to do is to also record, make, sit down and make a list of what you've accomplished in your life. So that when that voice says you're no good at anything, you can never do this. Um, other people do it much better. You can have this list where you say, you know what? I actually have a scoreboard that I've been keeping of all the things that I'm actually good at. And you don't have to be incredibly good at them. They could be things like, well, I learned to ride a bike. I learned to tie my shoe. But just write down a list of all the things that you've ever done that you can take some pride in. And doing exercises like that help, again, to focus your mind away from those kind of dark, shadowy battles and move it instead into the brightly lit arena of your accomplishment. And another, the, I think the most valuable thing, though, for me has been to recognize that when you're making something, that ultimately it's not really for you, it's for somebody else. And that there are people out there who are going to benefit from your creation. And, and that's really why you're making stuff. You know, and it may be a blog post that will, um, where you're sharing some ideas you have that spark somebody else. It could be an episode of a podcast that deeply flawed as it might be, somebody out there is going to be entertained by it. Somebody out there is going to have their day made brighter. Somebody out there is going to feel better because of it. But ultimately, it could be a bigger thing than that. It could be that your life is that you're here for this larger purpose to, to make the world a better place. And that, um, you know, the, the voice inside of you that's, that's cutting you down uh, isn't getting that, isn't getting that it doesn't really matter if this drawing that you did isn't that great or that they're editing that needs to be done to that piece of writing you did. What matters is you're making stuff, you're serving as an example, you're unearthing things that will be of value to other people. So if you can sit down and really think, why am I doing this? Why does this matter? And if the voice says, oh, it doesn't matter to anybody, nobody cares, go deeper with that and say, really? Like, what if I wrote this and I put it out there and somebody read it on a lousy day in their life and, and they felt better because of it or they thought differently? Really try and probe into that. What are you doing this for? And that's why the, you need to say to the inner critic, yes, 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 you're right. I suck. But what I'm doing is important and it's going to lead to something, to somebody else. You, you did a, a podcast, didn't you, that went with that book, Shut Your Monkey? Because <clears throat> I remember I listened to that quite a bit because <laughs> I had a monkey. I still got a monkey, obviously, but um, mine used to yell down one of those uh, megaphones <laughs> down my ear. And, and I came across your, your book and obviously your, your podcast um, quite by accident, actually. But I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And you don't do that anymore, though, do you? I did 12 episodes, I think, of that podcast. Um, and what I did is I, I talked about some of these ideas and then I interviewed various people. So I interviewed psychologists and artists and life coaches and musicians and different people. And I talked to them about this because I, I wanted to explore, you know, I, I don't pretend to be an expert. I'm not, I'm not a, a 
trained psychologist. Uh, I just know from my own experience and from my own reading and from talking to other people about what the edges of this thing are. You can't get rid of your monkey, by the way. It never goes away you, and you actually need it, but you can you can mitigate your response to it. You can control how much you give into it. You can have a more balanced relationship with it. But you do need it because, A, it's protecting you from really bad decisions. Um, but also, it's uh, you know it's, it's hardwired into you. And if you don't have it, uh, your life will go in a, could go completely off the rails. You can actually make friends with it. We've all got those friends, haven't we? The ones that sort of um, just aren't very tactful. <laughs> so I've kind of, that's how I've dealt with mine. I've kind of just made it this very tactless um, friend with no social skills. And that's how I've got around mine. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, to me, it was the yeah. sort of uh, smelly, wet little monkey sitting in the back of my head. You know, I thought of it as like Gollum with hair, you know, but, um, you know, in Lord of the Rings, they take Gollum along with them. You know, he's still part of their, they, they still need him. Um, so I think similarly, like, yeah, we need, absolutely, we need that that uh, uncouth friend to kind of bring us back to reality. But that doesn't mean that we have to listen to him all the time and listen to no one else. No, and but also if you don't, I've always thought if you don't have an inner critic, we wouldn't improve, would we? Because I think that's what drives us, isn't it, as well? Yeah, I think there's a difference between a critique and criticism. You know, yeah. a critique can help you to, you know, refine your ideas, to polish them, to go deeper, to, you know, realize what you have to cut. Criticism is just, you're no good. You know, you're terrible. Yeah. You'll never get anywhere. And that's, that, that stops the, the creativity. But, but a oh. critique can help you to focus and improve it. And also can be a whole bunch of new creative opportunities. You know, I mean, if you can get to the point where editing and rewriting are fun, you know, where, making it even better is is also a creative exercise that's great so so you ever nervous now when you share anything yeah i am i'm doing a presentation on friday and i'm doing it to an audience i've never done it to before and it's a presentation and stuff that i've talked about many times before but yeah i'm still sort of wondering what it's going to be like and um you know am i taking the right direction with it i'm also starting to write a new book and I'm having the same kinds of concerns about it. But I think that that's, I think if I didn't, um, I would be hopelessly arrogant. And I would also probably not do a very good job. And it also wouldn't be fun. I mean, part of the challenge of doing something new is the unknown aspect of it. And that could be a little scary, but it shouldn't be crippling. So how did you meet Kosha? And how did the idea of sketchbook school come about? So Kosha and I met when um, I we had met online, like you guys. You know, we had become friends. We weren't we weren't close friends at that point. We had just sort of corresponded a bit because you know I liked her work and I liked the fact that she was doing um, she was teaching some online classes and I was interested that in that as an idea um, because I had. I was looking for a new direction to go with my life and my work. And I had been teaching, I taught a couple of workshops, in-person workshops, you know, where I'd go and spend uh, some time with, say, 25 to 50 people and to, to teach them what I knew. But I found that it was enormously uh, consuming. It was just really hard work. And I was completely depleted after it. And I thought, isn't there a way that I could 
bottle this and share it with more people. Because I was used to doing that online. I mean, I'd, I would write a blog post or I write, would write a book and lots and lots of people would see it. Um, and so I thought, Isn't, is there a way that I could teach similarly? So I was thinking those thoughts when I went to Amsterdam to speak at this conference. And while I was there, I thought, I'm going to look up, you know, people who I know here. And, and I was like, oh yeah, kosher. So we met for a cup of coffee and uh, you know, we hit it off in person the way we had online. It was great. And we started talking about this. And, and I said, you know, I, I'd love to carry on this conversation. So when I came back, we continued to email. And we came up with this idea of having a class you know, that, that would include both of us. But then we thought, well, why don't we include some other people too? Um, and so we thought, let's do a six-week class, and each week we'll have a different teacher. And that made a lot of sense to me because I thought, um, I don't think that the best way to learn necessarily is from one person. There isn't one way of doing this. You know, uh, I can pretend to be an expert, but I'm not really one, and I'm only an expert on what I do, and other people have totally different points of view on it. So I think it would be really interesting to have more of a, a smorgasbord effect that people come, they take a class, they learn something from one person one week, and then the next week, a completely new person teaches them all new stuff, and that it keeps being this kind of kaleidoscope of, of experiences through the class. So um, we got a, a few of our friends who are artists to agree to, to join us on doing this. And we made this class and we had no idea whether anybody would sign up for it or what it would be like. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to make it video based. To me, that was really important because, um, there's a lot of classes you can take online and there's a lot of books you can buy that are, will teach you some aspect of art making. But I felt like it was really important to have it be video so that I could not only um, so see what you're doing, but also understand you as a person in the way that video does the writing and, and audio may not. Um, so another thing I was also been thinking about was that particularly in the United States, there's no TV shows about art making. There, in England, there are a few. Um, there are, there's like, the you have reality TV shows about, uh, portrait painting and landscape painting and things like that. There's a great BBC show called what do artists do all day? But in, in America, we, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen yeah, that. I've seen yeah, that. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really great. In America, we don't really have anything comparable. There's a guy named Bob Ross who had a, a public TV show in the seventies, um, who continues to, they continue to rerun his stuff, but he did these paintings in a studio and this is 40 years ago but there hasn't really been anything like it since so they they um played that over here quite a lot bob ross yeah. with all these happy accidents exactly and happy happy, happy trees, trees and stuff i think yeah <laughs> he's fantastic he is he's yeah. he's and he has um a way about him right it's so calming yeah. and nice to be around him but ben and when i think when people watch bob ross they generally don't watch him in order. They don't sit there with an easel and a palette and ready to paint what he's painting. They do it because it's a form of entertainment. And that's true in America and I think around the world now with cooking. There's a lot of cooking shows that you just watch to watch somebody cook. It's nice to see somebody who's like really competent at what they do. Or it's like watching a, a home improvement show. Uh, we like to see people make stuff. And um, but when it came to drawing and painting, I didn't really think that there was much like that. So I thought, let's try and make um, films where when you watch this show, uh, this class, it's like that. It's like going to the 
person's studio for the day. And if you came to my studio, what would it be like? Well, you'd come over and, you know, you'd, I'd show you around and I'd show you my studio. Um, and I'd tell you stories about my work or about my life or about things that I'd learned. And I would take some sketchbooks off the shelf and go through them with you. And I would show you my supplies and I would say, you know, here's the kind of paint that I like and here's the pens I use and here's why. And then I would sit down and I would do a drawing and I would talk to you about it. And you would see me, you know, in real time, not speeded up, not shot with a webcam, but filmed with by professional video crew with great sound and and I would and it would just be a, a beautiful experience to to watch this. And then throughout it, you would have this experience of watching these films in the company of other people like you. That to me was really important because I think we learn by having mentors and supporters and friends. You know, if you go and buy a book in the art supply store about how to draw, you're all excited when you buy it, but a few days later it might be on a pile on your table. But if you were to buy uh, that book with a friend and you were both going to work through it together, you'd actually make progress and you'd stick to it. So we want to have that experience that, that you were watching this, this one artist, but you're surrounded by other people like you and you're all learning together and you're encouraging each other and supporting each other and having conversations. And it's just all the great things about social media. I mean, when you very first started the sketchbook school, presumably you didn't start with the professional photographers and film crew because that would have cost, I assume, a lot of money. So that you must have sort of started off fairly primitively, I presume, or did, did you just go at it full, you know, full pelt straight away? Well, I mean, I had been making commercials for a long time. I'd been, I'd done, you know. I've made hundreds of commercials with millions and millions of dollars in budgets and I'd won awards for it. So I had a fair amount of experience in production. Um, Jack and I and some, another friend of mine had been making these things called sketchbook films for a while. So we had, we were, we were, I would say a couple steps above rank amateurs in this. We, we had good equipment. Kosha also had a previous life as a professional photographer. So she knew quite a lot about it as well. Um, we hired uh, uh, a film crews for our second round of this class to help us. So, f you know, uh, the first round was, um, well, actually, I had help in shooting my stuff. Kosha had help shooting hers. Um, I then helped another one of the teachers film hers. Another teacher hired a crew to help her do stuff. So from the beginning, we were fairly, you know, we, we were the next step above just a typical YouTube video. But, but yeah. we certainly um, continued from there because for both me and Kosha, making the films was part of the fun of it. We wanted to make these little documentaries. We wanted to have the fun of working with directors and, and um, you know, lighting crews and professional editors and, you know, getting great music. Um, Moby made the soundtrack for one of our films. And we wanted to just really plus it. So that, that was definitely on our radar from the beginning. We've been making some really funny films, haven't we, Tara? <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> With yeah. our iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still fun. We love it. It's such good fun. But were you surprised at how, how successful Sketchbook um, 
became in, in such a, a short time because it is huge, isn't it? I mean, everybody knows about Sketchbook School. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, yeah, you know, we we worked really hard at it, I have to say. I mean, we spent months promoting our first class. But what happened was that the people who took our class were the first one were just really into it. They were really enthusiastic and they loved the community that they were part of. And we had this Facebook group and people were interacting with each other. And, you know, it just became um, this sort of snowballing thing where people got more and more deeply into not just the actual content of the class, but the whole world around it. And this idea of being part of a community that gave you permission to make stuff and encouraged and supported you in doing it. And it's just gone on from there. So we've now made over 20 courses. We've got um, more than 50 artists, I think, have participated in this. About 50,000 people have taken our classes. Um, Our Facebook group has, I don't know, tens of thousands of people in it. And now we're getting ready for SketchCon, which is going to be our very first convention. So all these people who have met each other online are going to finally get a chance to all meet in person, or probably not all of them, but um, a a few hundred of them are going to meet in Pasadena, California in November. And we're going to have this amazing kind of three-day party where people are going to come together and we're going to have presentations and we're going to do drawings together and we're going to have wine and we're going to have fun. And it's just going to be amazing. It's kind of like the the next step of of this journey that we've been on. Well, that sounds amazing. Just wondering, when you do the classes for your sketchbook school, do you take the other artists' classes and try them? Yes. In fact, um, Kosha and I make what we call study hall videos. And so what we do is we do the homework for the class, that week's class, and we make a video about the challenge we had in making it. So uh, it's, I mean, we make these classes for us. That's always been, been the purpose of this is so that we can take them. And so, yeah, absolutely. We want to, we want, we can't wait to take each class. Are the ones that have really stood out for you that you've really enjoyed doing? Yeah, I love all my children. It's such a, a wonderful feeling though, isn't it? When you hear these stories of other people who it's actually made a big difference to. This, I mean, nothing beats it. Nothing beats it. I mean, there's... I mean, I I spent many years working for clients, you know, working for big companies, making, taking, you know, spending my creative energy, making things for them to help sell their ideas. Um, But now, you know, and that stuff reached, you know, tens of millions of people. Now I make stuff that reaches a much smaller number of people, but so much more meaningfully. You know, I feel like this is what I'm here for. Uh, Going back to what I was saying before about the inner critic, you know, if this is the purpose of why I'm here and it's partly for me, uh, definitely my interest and my goals are key in making stuff. I mean, I, I think, would I like this? Do I like this? Do I want this? Is this the way it should be? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But I also think about individual people who I've met over the years of doing this. And I think, would so-and-so, would this mean something to her? You know, is this going to help so-and-so reach the goals that he had? That absolutely is is a crucial part of all this. Yeah, I mean, we've also had people who, um, probably similar to you, Danny, they've had obviously something traumatic happen in their lives. Mm. And they've said that arts kind of pulled them out of it as well. So clearly art really has a lot of benefits, you know, to your mental health as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, in the end, we're teachers. And I think we're, but we can all be teachers. I mean, everybody has something to teach. And 
we just need to tell people that it's valuable, that we want to learn from them. And we want to think of all the things in our lives that we can share with people, things that we might feel comfortable sharing with our children, with our family, with our friends. Um, you know, the amazing thing about social media is everybody that you can find groups of people who are absolutely interested in the same stuff you're interested in, you know, whereas in the normal course of life, you might occasionally meet somebody who's vaguely interested in some part of something you meet, you, you know, you, you're interested in. But the fact is that most people who we deal with in real life, um, face to face, have other concerns. Um, and but when you can find your own tribe of people who share the kind of passion that you have for some particular thing, it's it's so interesting, so important, and we all get so much out of it. So, what do you think has been the sort of highlight of your creative journey so far? Um, you know, I think that. My goal probably was to have that shelf, and I have that shelf, and that's nice. Um, and, and of course, you know, as you discover as you get older in life, that um, you know, achieving your goals isn't isn't the end of isn't the objective, right? It's to have the next goal. Um, so for me, I think I think finding out that um, I have something to teach people has been surprising to me. I never thought of myself as a teacher. I was always sort of reluctant to do it. So that that thought has been um, been really rewarding to me. Uh, it continues to be interesting, the stuff that I do, and it continues to go in different directions. And I've learned a lot about myself in the process of doing it too, and how I think, and, um, and I've overcome a lot of obstacles. But it's a never-ending process. It really is. It just, it's learning and and growing is something that I hope I'll always do. I've met so many interesting people in the process as well and that's really been great. So uh, f- you know 5 years ago I quit my advertising career and I decided that I was going to focus on making the things that I really care about and it was incredibly terrifying thing to have done, but I haven't had a minute of regret since. Can I just be a bit nosy and because um, I know that you've remarried now? Haven't yes, you? I have. I got married two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and you mentioned that your wife is a creative. What what does she do? She works in advertising as well. She works in the production end of advertising. So. And have you got her into drawing and sketching with you? <laughs> you know, she she can draw and she does draw sometimes, but um, I I don't infect her with it. Um, you know, I, I think I don't. I don't try to make people do this. Um, it's no. bad enough that I do it. <laughs> so, where do you hope then to be um, in, say, another five years, or have you already got way further than you thought you'd be? I mean, yeah, I had no no intention of doing the things that I'm doing. Um, you know, I'm really excited by what's been happening with Sketchbook School, and I'm excited by this idea of SketchCon, the idea of people getting together and doing stuff. I definitely like that um, as a direction. Um, you know, I, I think what I'd also like, though, is to have more time to draw. I'd like to be able to, to travel a bit more in order just to draw. One of the things that's changed in my life is when my son was living with us, you know, when he was still a kid. And when even when I had the diversion of my career, drawing was really more of a, a vacation for me. And one of the things that happens is when you achieve your dreams and suddenly your vacation becomes your job, it becomes a job as well, you know. Um, so now drawing and writing about drawing is my job. So I want to make sure that I don't lose my love of it because of that. You know, it's easy for that to happen, I think, as you become professionalized in your in your passion. Um, so I want to have some opportunities to just go and draw for a few months, you know, and, and to have that 
that that freedom. So that's that's on my horizon. Yeah, I, t- I totally so relate to that thing of you know what you do become your job because uh, you know as a graphic designer, I totally lost my love of drawing through that, and it's only through doing the challenges it comes back. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a danger. It's a danger. It's it's sort of like the Peter Principle in reverse. Once you get good at something, then people want to pay you to do it, and then suddenly you you rely on it because you're getting paid for it, um, and so it can you know it can really change your relationship. It's you know, but uh, you know, you can be in love with something and 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 marry it and remain in love with it. So that's, I think, the balance. So SketchCon, um, are you going to do one in London? <laughs> and can I come? <laughs> that's the that's the price we have to pay, huh? We have to do it in your backyard for you to come. Well, I mean, part part of the fun of it is honestly is going somewhere else. You know, I mean, I'm, we're doing it on the other side of the country from where I live, and it's also uh, a long distance from where Kosha lives. We're doing it in a place that none of us live, but because uh, so, we want to really have it be a vacation, go to this place and immerse oh. yourself in it. Whereas if it's, I'm going to a conference right now. It's a month long conference, and it's about four blocks from my house, and we have things every day, and it's not nearly as exciting as it would be if I actually was going there. But but that notwithstanding, uh, we, we hopefully this will be successful in in uh, Pasadena. And if it is, we will do another one and we will do it in Europe, certainly. Um, I'm not sure that we'll do it in England. Um, we might do it in, in Amsterdam. I don't know yet. Uh, we'll see. But I think if this is successful, we, I could also imagine us doing smaller ones and doing them, um, you know, doing it with say half a dozen speakers for a day and then if we if we can get that to work then we could do them in different places but um i definitely want to i haven't um, come to england in a long time and there's uh so many sketchbook school uh students and teachers that are english and i would love the chance to do stuff with them so maybe we'll do just a, a an English version that would be nice. Mm. And Amsterdam is a fantastic place to go to draw. I mean, I've been there a couple of times, and it's such a beautiful place. It's so it? amazing. It's absolutely. Stunning. There's so many great yeah, museums yeah. there, and yeah. uh, f- great food, and you can walk, yeah, and you can walk everywhere, and you can ride bicycles. It's it's an amazing, amazing place. Although the bicycles over there, I hired a bike when I went to um, Amsterdam, and I didn't know that they don't have brakes. So I ended up mowing down a guy who was unloading some tangerines from the back of his van because I couldn't, I didn't know how to stop. But apparently what you have to do is you have to, you've got to pedal backwards to stop. But I didn't know. I just thought, where are the brakes? There are no brakes. This this, uh, bloke just dropped his oranges everywhere and I just fell off my bike. It was so funny. That sounds very (laughs) exciting. Yeah. You need a, a, foot brakes are hard to get used to. It's true. And they're big, heavy bikes, but they also have beautiful bike paths everywhere and, Bikes have the right of way. It's over pedestrians even. Um, compared to biking in New York, which is you know, definitely take your life in your hands, it's a very different experience. I bet. Um, where can people find out a bit more about you? Well, I would say um, you can certainly go to dannygregory.com. That's one place. Um, I have a, a blog at dannygregorysblog.com. But I would say the place I would like you to go to is Sketchbook School. And Sketchbook School, the easiest way to remember to get to it is sketchbook.school. That will take you there. No comms, just sketchbook.school. And you see a bit more about what we're what I've been discussing here. Um, I think that that's going to be a great place to learn. Uh, we also have a Facebook group uh, under Sketchbook School. And Sketchbook School, by the way, is spelled with a K. Um, but when it's sketchbook.school, it's just regular school, C-H. 
Um, so you can go there or you can go to sketchbookschool.com. And SketchCon is another thing, sketchcon.com is uh, again accessible through our website but sketchcon and con is spelt with a k too but any of these things just google google my name google sketchbook school you'll find your way to either of us fantastic well thank you ever so much for coming on talking to us oh it's been fantastic to speak to you it really really has i mean we've how many times have we mentioned danny gregory on our podcast yeah. tara i don't know what we're gonna do now though we need we need another name now no <laughs> Well, I'm sure we've mentioned you every podcast we've ever yeah. done so far. Well, it's, so nice. it's been so nice to talk to you. And I'm sorry if I feel like I've talked way too much, but um, hopefully you guys who are listening to this podcast are still listening. Um, and this, I think what you guys are doing with this podcast is fantastic. And um, I enjoyed your, your chat with uh, Youngman Brown, who is a pal of mine as well. So um, I'm glad that we have this sort of network of people. Yeah. Oh, he's a lovely guy. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Everyone's been so excited that we've got you on the show. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad to be here. And I'm, and I'm going to be starting up a podcast for Sketchbook School. So oh, maybe great. you guys will join me on that. We can, we can reciprocate. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Danny. It's been fantastic. Thank you, guys. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on iTunes. Back soon.